Rolling. Renegades. Andre and I had this big idea. Why isn't this a CE? CE by podcast. Mind blowing. People don't even know people like her exist. Renegades. I had to have the people who didn't believe in me. Between one day and the next, everything changed. Somebody found you. Thank God they found you. Shining a light on those people. And by the way, you're going to be inspired. You can't contain this, Sybil. You can't contain it. Nurses know how to solve shit. Nailed it. Renegades. Welcome to the Renegade podcast, a revolutionary approach to continuing education for nurses by nurses who are shining a light on the innovators, the creatives, the renegades who are blowing up the boxes that the rest of the world is still trying to think outside of. On today's podcast, we have Ryan Mason. She is a 29-year-old disability advocate, registered nurse, proud member of the LGBTQIA plus community, adaptive athlete, public speaker, sexuality educator, and self-proclaimed loudmouth Southern Belle. Ryan was born with a rare genetic collagen disorder called Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. Her journey between moving around like everyone else and moving around in a different way, she created an Instagram account that went viral called Chronically Rye. And now she helps other younger EDS patients and others with disabilities by sharing her story as a woman with a physical disability working as a nurse in healthcare. Ryan will inspire you and perhaps humiliate you a little bit with her, um, make you see how ignorantly and innocently ableist we are, even us folk in the healthcare profession. I know you're all going to really enjoy Ryan Mason. And don't forget, if you're a nurse, when you're done listening to this, you can head over to rnegade.pro. That's R-N-E-G-A-D-E dot pro. Sign up and get a CE credit. Enjoy, Ryan. I cannot wait to talk about all of this. Like, you are such a oh, fucking renegade. It is insane. Why, thank you. I do try. Well, <laughs> it's always so funny because I never know which way, um, like I will be received from, especially like the healthcare community, because <laughs> I am a little out there. Um, I guess a good place to start is um, where we kind of like to start with all our guests. Is what was the thing that made your life different from one day to the next? <laughs> was there a thing, or were there, you know? But what was the one thing? I would say the one thing would be the most obvious if you were sitting here next to me. It would be the uh, massive bunch of wheels under my ass. Um, (laughs) So I was born with a uh, genetic disorder called Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. Um, It's a connective tissue disorder. um, Affects all of my collagen in my body. Causes it to be super stretchy, um, which causes a plethora of super fun um, symptoms, but growing up, it was just hypermobile joints were really the only thing that we noticed. Um, Fast forward till I was, I didn't get diagnosed till I was 16. And the main takeaway from that diagnosis period was you'll be in a wheelchair by the time you're 20. 
um, and I managed to make it until 26. I maintain that. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so yeah, having to start using mobility aids at 20 and a wheelchair at 26 would probably be the big thing that changed the course of my life. For sure. <laughs> when did you get your nursing degree? Was that during, after, like how did that all? Mac dab in the middle. Really? Yes. I became a nurse when I was 21. Okay. So it was really in the center of that. I'm really good at picking um, careers that are suited for my body. It's, um, an, it's an expertise of mine. <laughs> <laughs> Ask all of my doctors. Should that. we read Sargasm now? <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> a lot. Um, yeah, no. So, so tell me a little bit about what it's like to be disabled. Because I will tell you, if you know anything about Karen and I, we started out as well nurses for a long time in conventional medicine, but patient advocates uh, are kind of our were our second careers. And I have had a couple of clients who have had EDS, and I didn't even know about EDS before. And one of them was actually in a wheelchair and actually bedbound, and he taught me so much about disability that I had no idea. It was it was really eye opening. I mean, I mean it, it it's almost like disabled people are invisible. Yes. Absolutely. And honestly, I had zero idea until right around maybe three or four years prior to myself starting to require a wheelchair full-time. Um, I actually met a guy on Tinder who became my best friend, um, but he is a paraplegic. He's in a wheelchair. And prior to that point <clears throat> in my life, I'd really only kind of been on the outskirts. I have a blind cousin kind of with the disability community. It wasn't anything I really knew that much about. And I really didn't know what that experience would be like when I had to go through it myself. Um, So I think the biggest shock for me was just not so much the way that like the community treated me, not so much when I was out in public and suddenly this disability that I had my entire life became very visible and not something that I could choose to disclose should I want to. Um, it, it was really, and still to this day, <laughs> is the reaction of society as a whole. And the fact that we really are expected to be you know, seen and not heard, maybe not even seen, kind of shoved in a corner. Okay. You know, you're not really supposed to work. We don't know how to make that work for you. It doesn't really matter. And even the fact that COVID has kind of helped things a little bit, um, as far as that goes, but yeah, no, just the fact that as soon as I came back to nursing and I said, Hey, you know, I do really still want to do this as my career. I was basically looked at like I had four heads. They're like, no, we don't know how to do that. That's never been done before. No. Like, well, what am I supposed to do? Oh, well, I mean, you could go on disability. Disability is basically forced poverty in this country. For me to go from working full-time as a registered nurse in this country, making a healthy salary, to be to- being told that I should go on disability and suddenly only be able to have $2,500 to my name every single month. That's not feasible. The expenses of being disabled. I was just going to say that wouldn't even, yeah. My wheelchair costs almost as much as most of my cars and insurance covered 
maybe half and very little. And this is something that I require in order to get around my day-to-day life. It's not just something that, oh yeah, this is kind of fun. Let me just try this out. Right. Oh my God. Totally fascinating to me how much the disabled community is constantly fighting insurance, fighting healthcare, a system that should be right alongside and supporting us Mm -hmm. and them. Um, And the fact they just, we have to fight just to be seen and shown that we exist and that we have worth. It's and it, that blows my mind. I mean, you'd think healthcare cause you're taking care of people with disability, like you're in the system. You would think that that would be the most likely place for somebody with a disability to have work facilitated. But, but Ryan, I think it's fascinating even more than that is that like, I'm a nurse, right? So that's, you know, we're nurses. So you would think I would know about what it's like to care for somebody with a disability. And when I got hired by this client, I mean, I think honestly, he probably taught more. He, he taught me more than I actually helped him. Like it, it was so eye opening that even me who you can assume is going to, you know, see you and care for you. And no, it, it was completely over my head. And he would stop me in my tracks all the time and say, say that's ableism or that's, and I, what, what do you, what is that? I didn't even know what that was. Nope. Had no idea. I had never heard the term ableism. Had no, I had no concept. Um, and it was just completely eye-opening as someone who, has never been shy about opening her mouth. <laughs> I was like, this is, this is ridiculous. And so right around the time, um, it was 2017. It was right around the time um, my disability, I was, it was beginning to affect my mobility. And it was causing me, at the time I was working full-time as an ER nurse. It was my absolute dream job. All I wanted to do was become a flight nurse. And so I would, you know, put in my time. I was a charge nurse. Um, it, I'd been in the ER for about five years. I was totally right on the road to flight nursing. And all of a sudden, my hips started giving out. Instead of just being this party trick that I've had my entire life, it was giving out every time I took a step. And so I was just like, this is it. This is the moment. Like my doctors have been warning me about my whole life where my body will start to slowly stretch out over time because the collagen just isn't strong enough. And so I remember having to go to the physical therapist and get fitted for a cane. Um, and then going to get to the point where, where I thought I was getting sized to perform crutches for the first time and being walking away with a prescription for a wheelchair, just completely blindsided. And I re- remember just thinking like, I have no idea what I'm doing or how to go through this or who to even talk to about what I'm going through. And so like any proper millennial, I turned to social media and I <laughs> created an Instagram and I said, you know, my whole life I've had this disability that was completely invisible unless you knew me really well or recognize some of the splints that I would wear. It was something that I could easily choose to put on that suit of, oh yes, I'm in the disabled community, or I could look perfectly able-bodied. And suddenly I didn't have a choice. And that was just mind-blowing for me um, to have to make that transition. And so I created my Instagram, Chronically Rye, as this kind of diary of sorts, mainly to just my friends and family to be like, okay, I know like you've 
all know me my whole life, but most of you don't know that I was born with a disability and here's what it's doing to my body. And so I just kind of stream of consciousness put on exactly what I was going through and exactly how it felt. And when I was diagnosed at 16, back in the early 2000s, um, so they, social media was just kind of starting. Facebook had like just started. And so, um, we, there wasn't a really like a support group or a way that I could reach out to other people with Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. I'd certainly never heard of it. Half my doctors had never heard of it. Nobody could tell me what a future looked like. Nobody could tell me if I'd be able to have kids or if it would affect my lifespan. Um, I had no way to connect with anyone. It was very lonely. Um, and so all of a sudden this Instagram that I created thinking just, it was going to be me and my friends and family are all these people reaching out going, Oh my gosh, like you were going through exactly what I went through. And I've never had anybody with EDS that I could talk to that works a full-time job or is actively transitioning mobility aids and talks with this kind of just fervor and you know, <laughs> lots of curse words. <laughs> but it was, Those are welcome here. Yeah. <laughs> it's just kind of blew me away. And so it didn't take long for it to kind of blow up. And by the time I was in a wheelchair, I was starting to use a wheelchair in 2019. I was crowned Miss Wheelchair Virginia, which is a whole other thing. And (laughs) my Instagram kind of blew up from there. (laughs) And suddenly I found myself advocating for this community that, yeah, I'd been born into, but I really had only been a member of for a couple of years actively. And it just blew my mind. And now I can't imagine. Sounds like they needed a megaphone and the good Lord provided. <laughs> <laughs> like that, that's for sure. <laughs> can you, can you tell us kind of more about ableism and what that looks like, what that looks like for regular people and what that looks like for people in healthcare? Because uh-huh. I mean, I'm, I'm the first one to admit clue less. So ableism is a term that gets tossed around a whole bunch in the disabled community, um, which is basically anything that, whether purposefully or not, goes directly against or attacks a disabled human being. Um, So ableism could be an example of, you know, ableism that's not necessarily intentional in the community looks like... um, my partner and I, who was also a wheelchair user, going to a community event last weekend, and it was a block party, so they had fencing on the streets, and they had covered every single curb cut, so there was no way for a disabled individual to get to the sidewalk or even enjoy the entire event. And so whether purposefully or not, you know, this is an act of ableism. Um, and so that's the issue a lot of people have with that term is so much in our community is unconscious ableism because of lack of education in healthcare. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this oftentimes looks like um, me rolling into a room and my physician or practitioner automatically assuming that I cannot stand, I cannot use my legs, I am automatically paralyzed because I use a wheelchair, um, or um, that I am faking because I am not paralyzed and use a wheelchair and my legs do work and I can stand um, mm. is another big wow. one. Wow. Yeah, that's a, that's a big one and very, very, very common. 
unfortunately. Ambulatory wheelchair use, whole thing. It's like a ghost people or a unicorn. I don't think it exists, but it's very common. Mm-hmm. Um, but things like that, or, you know, telling somebody, I had a friend who was a part-time wheelchair user and uh, was hospitalized and was calling out for help uh, to get back into bed and was told, well, you can walk, just get up and walk. Things like that. <laughs> that is what a lot of time ableism looks like in healthcare. And so unfortunately, and fortunately for those of us in the disability advocacy scheme, so much of it is just lack of education, lack of experience, lack of hands-on attention, or even just knowledge about the disabled experience. Um, and in healthcare, oftentimes it's no fault of our own. Um, in most healthcare curriculums, disability is kind of this thing that, you know, I, I remember in my nursing school, it was maybe two weeks and it was just disability, all encompassing. <laughs> yeah, was, was, there a, was there a moment when you were transitioning that it was like, no, 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 this isn't happening. Like you're going through the motions, but in your mind, you're thinking it's going to get better, whatever. And you're resisting, resisting, resisting. And then was there a moment you just kind of, fuck it. like, oh. oh, yes. Um, one of the reasons that I kind of, when I started to have to rely more um, permanently, if you will, on mobility aids, I totally did not fare well. Um, I had no idea what I was going through. I was not prepared for the fact that, you know, losing your independence and losing your mobility and losing my dream job uh, for the second time in my life due to my disability, because I uh, went all through my high school and middle school years wanting to be a professional dancer and training to do so, and then was diagnosed right when I was <laughs> dance schools for college and told, eh, exhale on that, find another mm-hmm. So this is the second time this, that my disability has done this to me in my life. Um, I wasn't thinking that it's completely a grief reaction. It is grieving this entire part of my life, this entire body that I once lived in that was so much more able-bodied and so much more able to, to traverse the world, the able-bodied world. And I had awful uh, panic attacks. Depression was terrible. Ended up uh, eventually costing me my marriage at the time, um, which was a blessing in disguise, but you know, things happen. Um, and <laughs> it got so, so bad that my breaking point was that there was a moment of self-harm. And I was like, this is, this is so far out of what I am capable of and comfortable with processing by myself. And so it was at that point that I immediately reached out to mental health services for the first time in my adult life. And I was like, I don't know what, I don't know what's going on. I'm not myself. This is not me. What is happening? And they're like, what what do you think is happening? You're having a ridiculous grief reaction to a very huge trauma in your life. And I'm like, well, that'd be nice if I'd known that like six months ago. Cause I'm over here thinking like, I need to get over it. Like grow the fuck up. You're fine. Just suck it up. Like, come on, look at those Olympians. They're fine. What's wrong with you? I had no concept of what I was dealing with. And, um, 
when I was about the time I was crowned Miss Wheelchair Virginia was the time that I was coming to terms with this is my life and this is what it's going to look like for the rest of the foreseeable future unless you know modern medicine comes up with some major crazy cures um and I can either sit here on my couch and get worse and worse and worse, or I can get the fuck up, get in my wheelchair and do what I'm good at, which is advocating for my patients and advocating for my community. And so that's what I did. <laughs> it was not easy. And it, it took a lot of wine and <laughs> a lot of therapy. And, um, but I threw, therapy and through sharing my story publicly and getting more involved with the disabled community, um, I was able to, to overcome that. That's not to say there aren't bad days. Oh my good Lord. I talk about them all the time on my page of Mm -hmm. just like, there are times when I'm at work, I'm like, this is bullshit. Like, (laughs) come on. Like five years ago, I could have done this in two seconds. This patient would have been like triage, back to gun. This is so annoying. And then I'm like, all right, like you chill out. You're fine. Usually that's the second that I roll into the room and the patient says something super inspiring about me being in a chair and working. And I'm like, all right, I get it. <laughs> I suck it what, up. What, in your job now, what does that look like when you come across ableism? Like how do you advocate for yourself in the, in the field? And then how do you teach that to other people? I mean, I can imagine that your floor where you work, they must be very educated by now. <laughs> I've been working there since April and um I remember my first like I really wasn't sure so this is my first job back at bedside full-time as a wheelchair user I worked for two years as a case manager I was still acute care and on the floor but I wasn't physically hands-on caring for patients so I'm just back to that um over the past six months and um I remember the first preceptor I had like day one on the unit so I'm a postpartum nurse and so very hands-on, whole different field than my 13 years experience in emergency services was prepared to deal with. That's a switch right there. Um, But my preceptor, I remember at the end of the day, she was like, you know, I was really, really nervous going into this. I was like, what are you talking about? She goes, I have, I've never worked with a, you know, physically disabled nurse. And I kind of was worried about how much of the slack I was going to have to pick up. And I'm like, I appreciate that honesty. because I would be too, if I were you, honestly. And she was like, but then it took about, you know, 15 minutes of working alongside you for me to be like, oh wait, no, she, she's a fully competent nurse. She's just in a wheelchair and she's faster than me because of it. So, <laughs> but yeah, so in my job right now, I'm so this so this is going on three years of working in a hospital in different hospitals as a wheelchair user. And by now I am so used to it. Um, so the way I work on my floor, uh, I use my wheelchair 97% of the time. I use my wheelchair completely um, in the hallways, passing meds, the whole nine. Um, but our rooms are very small. And so sometimes I will go into the room and use um, our wows as a walker. And so Mm -hmm. I'll do that. But I always, like I have a system. When I do my first initial assessments, I go in in my wheelchair so that if they're going to say something, (laughs) it's right there. Get it out of your system. (laughs) It's fine. I don't mind. Ask me all the questions you want. Sometimes I'll even like 
usually I'm the one bringing it up, like patients coming down and triaged and I'm trying to fit myself in the room with two stretchers and, you know, 75 things. And I'm like, all right, there are way too many things on wheels here. So I'm going to get out. So I'll be back. Mm -hmm. y'all. And so usually I don't have to deal with the ableism as much for my patient population. Um, But when I do, it's usually just a, you know, somebody makes a comment about, oh, do you need me to push you? Um, I once had a patient who just, it was patient's husband and just stared and stared and stared the entire initial assessment. I've been in the room like 45 minutes and I'm like, okay, can I get you anything? Like really like, dude, what is going on? And he just goes, I just can't believe they let you work like that. And I said, I'm sorry, what? He goes, you like that, you know? crippled. I can't believe I let you work like that. I'm just like, Oh, like I call myself a cripple all the time, but do men, you just met me five minutes ago. <laughs> wow. And so in that time, that's, you know, what? yeah, well, I was born like this when, uh, working this disabled body for a long time and uh, it hasn't failed me yet. So here I am. And but Ryan, I think the interesting, I mean, that's like right in your face, right? Like you can see that, but it's that more subtle stuff. Like, do you need me to push you? Yeah. Because to me, if I had been a nurse on your unit, I might have asked you that and had no idea that that was, you know. So in healthcare, I'm curious, like, we don't get any of this training. I mean, we get training on, in a, I, I was an operating room nurse for many years, and we, we got all kinds of training on how to treat people who were in the LGBTQ community. I mean, I'm not even very good at, at my daughter is like, here, let me lay it out for you. This is non-binary. So I'm getting the education. <laughs> I feel good about that at least. But like, I would think that we're doing that in the operating rooms. Like how do we treat people who go by they, you know, how, right. And, and so but nothing on, nothing on disability. Nothing. There's so little education and it's so seldom tackled because from the outside world, it's this huge community, right, of all these different, um, you know, blind, deafness, limb, dis- limb um, disparities, wheelchair users, huge group. But you're so right. There's some very, like, cut and dry rules and things, you know, terms. Like, for example, the people asking to push me thing will never bother me in a million years. Because in healthcare, that's what we're seen to do, especially, like, um, when I first started working in my hospital, I had no idea where any of the parking was, right? And so I'm trying to park like way farther away than I needed to. And there's this hill because my current hospital, I also was, when I was in nursing school, I did my clinicals here. So I've been to this hospital many, many times ambulatory. And so I've been back and forth to this, this parking garage. Well, hills are a lot less scary when you are walking. So I never really noticed how uphill it was. And so I was like day one and I am struggling. I'm like, push. I'm like, I got this. I got this. And I mean, everyone's like, do you need me to push you? Like, are you okay? And of course I'm stubborn. I'm like, nah, I'm good. I got this. Like I am never going to be angry about that, but it always cracks me up when it's, it is like at work, I'll be just like pushing meds down the hallway or something. And someone's like, do you need me to push you? I'm like, I'm at work doing my job, dude. I'm supposed to be pushing you. <laughs> like, no. So 
So little things like that, no, don't bother me a bit, but you're right. It's so fascinating to me how little training. My last job when I was a case manager, I was a float case manager, was the only one in the hospital, went um, to every floor. So I knew everybody. Um, And I was in a ridiculously brightly colored light up wheelchair. So, you know, everybody knew who I was. Um, And it got to the point where anytime we had a patient who was a, a wheelchair user, especially if there were issues surrounding their disability or issues surrounding that wheelchair or how to use it or anything like that, they would just call me. Like, this is not my job, but I'm just like resident wheelchair user. I'm like, all right, wheels are in to the rescue. Let's go. <laughs> it's fascinating. It it's- is fascinating. Again, that's... Well, I mean, it makes sense. There's no training because going back to the very beginning of this conversation... There, the healthcare doesn't facilitate disabled people to work there. There, you need to get the information for the trainings from people with disabilities, and they're not there. So it's it's people without them making shit up. <laughs> Absolutely, and going incorrect shit. <laughs> oh yeah, completely correct shit. That, that is not really helpful for anyone. For example, oh, a glaring, beautiful example of this. Um, is person-first language. I do not personally know a single adult functioning disabled human being who appreciates or uses person-first language. Um, So for anybody listening that might not know, person-first language in the disabled community is instead of... Yeah, for everybody else. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I just remember getting so many trainings on this when I was like a new nurse over and over. And so it's pounded into my head. Um, so person first language in the stable communities, instead of saying, um, so a um, wheelchair girl or a, um, a disabled person, it's a person with a disability or a girl who uses a wheelchair. It's always person first, disability second. So this was something that was majorly pounded into my head um, when I was studying my first degree in public health ed and then going back to nursing school, I mean, over and over and over. And then I enter the disabled community and I start learning from these other advocates. So the reason that person-first language is not preferred is because something that society likes to do is see disability as this huge negative thing. Disability is bad. It is something that needs to be hidden. It is something that needs to be overcome and something that needs to be defeated. Um, And for those of us who are born with disabilities that are never going anywhere, you know, that's that's a big old pill to swallow. So in order to... To switch that, you know, I, I don't identify as a person with a disability. I'm a disabled person. I'm a disabled woman. That is who I am. My disability is such a huge part of my life. I, I'm not trying to hide it. I don't need it to be, frown, you know, frowned upon or hidden. Same goes for terms like differently abled. Um, <laughs> it's just another way that society was trying to employ that disability is a negative or a bad thing. So then the, the education around, um, around disability is it's okay and maybe preferred to say a disabled girl instead of the girl with a disability. Yeah. Right. It's, it's, yeah. So disabled girl would be the preferred for a hundred percent. I mean, it blows my mind that this is there. Like I'm getting, you're educating me. 
It's, it's all I mean, stuff that I have to learn too. I had no idea because especially coming from healthcare, it's almost completely opposite of how we are taught to think of disability. And I, I hear the term wheelchair bound oh. in my head. Like, oh my gosh, like that just, you don't think of it. No, I, that's, and it's also, I mean, there are so many, uh, oh, another one that I will drop on you all. Uh, inspiration porn is a common term that you will hear in the disabled community that usually gets uh, exactly the look that you're giving me right now. <laughs> um, so inspiration <laughs> porn is something that is so slick, especially in media, that you would never have really thought about it until I'll tell you what it is. So, disa- so inspiration porn is basically... Uh, utilizing a disabled person for, you know, inspirational reasons, whether it's, you know, somehow celebrating them for doing, just being disabled, just doing life as a disabled person. So, you know, those posters that always come to mind are like the little kid with a disability, like with a big old smile on their face. And it's like, if they can do it, so can you. Oh, yeah. <laughs> They're literally just living their life and the fact that they are living instead of choosing to, to die. I mean, but <laughs> to sit no, on but- the couch and do nothing is somehow inspirational to the able-bodied community. And so the way I always explain to people, um, like when I ta- would do like public speaking would be, so if you run into me like grocery <coughs> shopping, oh, I, my girlfriend and I get it all the time out grocery shopping. Totally something that we do by ourselves every <coughs> single you know, week, uh, but we get stopped six or seven times per trip of, oh my gosh, it's so inspiring to see you out and about. It's like, seriously though, it's so true. Yeah. And so my joke is like, okay, if you come up to me in the grocery store and you call me inspiring, I'm not going to say anything to you most likely unless you come at me and you're me, but like frowned upon. But if you're going to come and like, tell me I'm inspirational for continuing to work as a nurse in a wheelchair, like bless you. Cause this is the shit's hard. I've done it both ways. And this is much harder than it was when my legs worked. <laughs> like yeah. I'll be inspiring for that. That's fine. Do and you the- get that a lot on your, in your Instagram? So like, because you know, you, you got a lot of stuff on there. This, yeah. you know, absolutely. And, and so I can imagine lots of able-bodied people. Oh my gosh, you're such an inspiration. I do. Well, I mean, I think I might've told you that. <laughs> like in that setting, especially because of what my Instagram content is, is need specifically sharing a lot of my successes and my gains, as well as my failures as a disabled woman. And because I share my life so candidly, you know, people come in and finding my life and what I've been through inspirational. Whereas, you know, it takes me back. Cause I'm like, what are you talking about? I'm just living. I don't know. And then I kind of look yeah. at my, what I've done. I'm like, I was editing my resume today, this morning before I sent it over. And I was like, all right, let me like, like, oh man. Oh, okay. When you see it all written down on paper, that's not too shabby. All right. Yeah. So when that, that it, <laughs> don't, don't you wish that when times, well, I don't know, maybe you needed to go through that. I don't know. I'll let you answer the, my question for you. Um, when, it was the most difficult during the transition. Resist, resist, resist. Do you wish you had someone like you to be inspired by? Lord have mercy, yes. Um, it would have been so incredibly helpful. Just And I think around that time, 
when things started to turn, that's exactly what happened is I, what, what helped me the most was finding, you know, really finding the disabled community and realizing that this is this, this huge community that I am a part of and that I did have so much to bring to the table for this community. And so realizing, okay, you know, I can be so down on myself and everything for everything that I've lost, or I can look and see what all of these people who are living in similar situations to me, all of the successes that they're going through in their lives. So I followed every Paralympian, every wheelchair user on Instagram. I mean, literally people probably thought I was like fetishizing disability because that is what I followed because it was this part live growing, growing up in, you know, the rural Southwestern Virginia where I knew two wheelchair users my entire life and both were intellectually disabled and power chair users. So, so not my disability. I had no one to relate to. There was nobody in media. Um, the first thing I thought of was Archie from Glee or Artie, whatever his name, show my sister used to watch. Right. And yeah, yeah. Terrible, terrible representation of disability looking back, but that's a whole other thing. Um, <laughs> I, the point is, Oh my gosh. Was, so ableism in show business. Yeah. Who knew? <laughs> <laughs> Right. Um, so, so it was just, I had nobody to look up to. There was nobody in media. There were no real celebrities or anything. And so I, oh my gosh, absolutely. Look to anyone who was succeeding with a disability and was like, I need some encouragement here, guys. And social media is really what turned things around for me between social media and adaptive sports. But yeah. <laughs> Oh, so tell us a little bit about that because I've seen some of the the photos and the like um, badass. Hello, <laughs> isn't it so? Isn't it sort of Spartan stuff? Yes, yes. Oh my god. Um. So the great part about this is, um, prior to me becoming a wheelchair user, um, me and athletics were not friends. Um. Well, traditional athletics. So I said me that too. I was a dancer. <laughs> yeah. Like, I remember I worked for the gym and the rec center in college, and my roommate and I were like, all right, we're going to work out. Like, we're going to do this. Like, I work there. I go there every day. Let's go. And we would go, and there was a smoothie bar at the gym, and so we would go, and we'd, like, get on the elliptical for five minutes and be like, all right, I broke a sweat. Let's go get a smoothie. And that was was it. Um, so I was a dancer. I was a theater girl. I was not in traditional athletics. Um, and then all of a sudden I become a wheelchair user and my best friend who is also a wheelchair user is a, uh, coaches, um, at the time, a wheelchair basketball team, never played basketball a day in my life. Uh, my memories are from gym class, um, where they always made fun of me because they said I ran like a duck did not realize it was because my hips were dislocating, mm. <laughs> but it was, you know, it was Jim, not a great time for me. So I was like, Jacob, I, no, 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 dancer, not playing sports. He's like, look, okay. Your disability is degenerative. By the time you get, um, you know, you're really ready to come and play basketball. I'm going to get to you. You'll be a wheelchair user. I'm going to get to you. This is how we speak to each other. I'm like, all right, fine, <laughs> fine. So the day I start having to rely on forearm crutches, he's like, so you're coming to basketball practice? Fuck. Okay. All right. Let's do it. You know, it's been like, <laughs> fine. And so I show up 
And suddenly my eyes are open to the fact that it's not that I hated sports my whole life. It's that my legs didn't work. And so suddenly when you take them out of the equation, oh, I'm actually quite strong and capable and good at sports. Who knew? <laughs> so at 26, I started lifting weights and joined a wheelchair basketball team um, and then tried every adaptive sport I could get my hands on from sit skiing to adaptive tennis. Um, yeah, you name it. If it was possible, I strapped my like floppy legs into it. Um, and then the most recent of that being, um, I've started become addicted to Spartan races or any of the obstacle course racing. Um, I have a team, um, it's a charity called more heart than scars, uh, that they work to get more adaptive athletes out, um, into nature and out in, in via Spartan races and, and obstacle course races from, it started with young autistic boys who their moms just wanted to try it and go with um, most of the team is made out of uh, retired or still racing. Some of them elite Spartan athletes who are very capable and they I'm strapped into an off-road wheelchair and they help pull me through the course, but I do every obstacle um, on my own um, with whatever assistance I require from them if I need them to spot me or something, but yeah. What's the most like, um, challenging obstacle that you've had to do? Um, I mean, this is, this is my question, even if you weren't in a wheelchair, (laughs) it's, it's badass. (laughs) Thank you. Um, yeah, I think every time I do one, I'm just so taken aback. I remember like being in high school and, and college when they like became a thing and just looking back and going like, no way in hell will I ever in my life. No. And now I've, I've like addicted and I've done like five of them. <laughs> so, um, the, the hardest one for me, I, well, for me, it's like disability wise, it kind of sucks because I, we always, um, my girlfriend also does them with me. And so we always joke like we hate the ones that we can't physically do. So like, um, there's it's like the Atlas carry. So you're carrying a giant boulder and mm-hmm. you would be walking and carrying that. And there's no way for us to really do that. So they just sit it on our laps and we're uh-huh. like, that's dumb. Uh, yeah. But yeah. the physically hardest one that I can accomplish is probably the rope climb. Really? Oh yeah. I've never climbed a rope in my whole life until my very first Spartan race. It just never. I'm like, uh, I mean, maybe like a playground. Possibly. Yeah, that's a hard. I mean, that's that's yeah. really that's hard. So, can you get to the top of the rope now? Oh and I gosh. can't. And I have to do um, it with my legs like this instead of like wrapped and all like cute looking. I look like a frog because otherwise my hips will dislocate. And so I keep them in by like doing this ridiculous looking like yoga frog thing, getting up there. I'm like, by golly, I get up there. <laughs> Man, the upper body strength you must have for like, do you, do you work out for the Spartan races? Cause yeah. it, I mean, um, it, I got into weightlifting, um, really around the time this all started. Cause, um, the more I researched my condition, the more I saw, you know, a lot of benefits from if I could, the more muscle I can put on surrounding my joints, they, it may still be stretchy, but it's still mass that's holding my joints in. Um, and so I, buckled down and I was like, all right, well, guess I'm going to get my skinny little at the time, like 115 pound, five, nine skinny lanky ass into the gym. And I did and, um, put on like 30 pounds of muscle 
Wow. Uh, so it has, does it, is it helpful? Like, can you tell that having that mass is, yeah. Um, my legs, I can't really de- build the muscle that I need to on there just because I have to do only like seated exercises. Right. It supports my upper body. Um, I've had bilateral shoulder surgeries to actually tighten the joints down. So one of my shoulders at birth would um, sublux or partially dislocate and go right back in over a hundred times a day. Every time I raised my right arm above shoulder level, it would just pop and fall to the floor. Like I couldn't carry things my whole life. So when I was 20, I had experimental surgery to completely tighten the joint down to no motion to frozen shoulder, basically, um, because they were just going to rely on my disability. You'll stretch it back out. And I'm like, well, this is going to go one of two ways. (laughs) Awesome. But at that time, I'd torn like every ligament from the constant dislocations and they'd become full dislocations. And I was having to go and get it put in by professionals because it was getting I mean, stuck. Isn't that like, painful? I heard that was painful. Horribly. <laughs> I'm like, all right. All I would right. take the surgery, I think. <laughs> the day that my shoulder dislocated from opening a door, I was like, all right, this is, we gotta, no, <laughs> we're going to fix this. Um, so since then, um, so, uh, both of the surgeries that I've had, um, they do, they tried to go in with heat the first time around and immediately stretched back out on the operating table. So they had to actually stitch both shoulder capsules down to no motion. Mm-hmm. And then I'm immediately sent into physical therapy for usually around six months total. Um, really, really hardcore, uh, to stretch it back out, which yeah. generally does not take me very long. Um, so whereas my shoulders will always be really hypermobile and they're always really stretchy and I have to be very careful. I can't lift weights above my head that I probably could. Otherwise I am able to self-propel myself in a manual wheelchair, which is something I was told I would always need a, a power chair because of my shoulders. Mm. Um, yeah. So it's, it's totally changed my life for sure, but it took a long time and a lot of convincing. <laughs> <laughs> Wow. What a story, right? Are you participating in any like, um, re- like research or like, is anybody, I'm, I'm just wondering because you are so able, um, and doing all the Spartan stuff and the weightlifting, whatever, are they looking at your joints? And just cause my brain starts going, I wonder if that starts stimulating collagen to make, you know, because you're doing all that stuff and you're so active. Like, does that, and it, are, are people, um, doctors looking at you as like a new way to do this? Cause it doesn't, like Andre said, I, I will, until you had that patient with it, Andre, the, your, your clients with, I've never, never heard of it. I don't think most doctors have even heard of it. And they, to me, tell me if I'm wrong, but my sense is that that's autoimmune by, we don't really got much for you in the conventional world, in the more functional integrative space, you know, they load you up with supplements and they kind of do this whole, you know, shtick, but yes. there's still not a lot of there's- knowledge. Little to no research. Um, so right now, as of like six months ago, the last time that I really looked, and I should double check this because there's constant, some constant research, there were about 13 subtypes of Ehlers-Danlos mm-hmm. syndrome. So the most common of that is hypermobility, Ehlers-Danlos, um, which supposedly only affects, um, is supposed to only really affect the joints, um, that hypermobile joint and cost chronic dislocations is your main symptom Um, that goes on to affect skin, organs, things like that. Generally, we start to look at other types. Um, Classical, for example, vascular EDS is um, the 
most um, uh, life shortening, if you will. Um, Is that the cardiac? Yes. That's the one that affects strongly affects all your vascularity. So very, very prone um, to um, uh, aortic aneurysms Mm -hmm. uh, and so things like that. So there are so many different subtypes, but (laughs) they have yet to actually synthesize the gene that is responsible for hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos syndrome or the most common type. Um, Mm. It's very difficult to research because it's so hard to diagnose and it's very mm-hmm. hard to get diagnosed. Most people with Ehlers-Danlos syndrome don't get diagnosed until their twenties or thirties mm-hmm. because they just have these random collection of symptoms that unless you're specialized, you would never think Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. Um, and so as far as research goes, it's really difficult in that sphere, even um, in my own case. And I talk openly about my diagnosis issues. So I was diagnosed at 16 with hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. But since that time, uh, my skin is heavily involved. I have poor wound healing. I've had so many organ involvements. But because just getting someone knowledgeable enough in that genetic Conversation. I mean, I was discharged from rheumatology at a very large teaching hospital in the area because they were just like, we don't, we don't know what to do with you. Like you're functioning. Okay. Cool. Why, why do they, why um, do they think this is autoimmune in nature? I, I know there's this genetic piece, right? Like, but then it feels like they kind of dump you into it's an autoimmune disease and I can't really make heads or tails of, so that's the fascinating part. So Ehlers-Danlos syndrome itself is not autoimmune. So there are lots of people with Ehlers-Danlos syndrome who have, there's a plethora of comorbidities that come along with EDS. Um, some ones that are, you know, very, very common are gastroparesis because the stomach does tend to stretch out and therefore it gets deemed paralyzed when really it's just stretched. Um, so gastroparesis is one, um, something called mast cell activation, activation syndrome is one, which is basically your mast cells are what are responsible for your allergy response in the body. Mm-hmm. Um, somebody with mast cell, those are just insanely overactive and not basically think you're allergic to everything and nothing. Um, and that's so why it becomes autoimmune, right? That one right there is autoimmune. And so that's why oftentimes they, we get lumped into, okay, you're in an immune condition. We don't, you need to be in physical therapy and then physical therapy is like, okay. I honestly, I've had the best treatment from my physical therapist over the year. Mm -hmm. They're the ones who are like, all right, I'm going to, I've never heard of this before, but let me just dive into this research and Mm -hmm. help you develop a treatment plan because doctors just... Well, so that's another interesting education piece, right? Because, you know, from my experience with the client that I had, he was young and, and, um, you know, to your point, the best uh, provider he had was the physical therapist. And, you know, it was all, well, get off gluten and get off dairy. And, and so that distinction between, you know, maybe there is some benefit to, you know, cleaning up your diet and all of this, but really like to educate people like, you, you can't just lump us into this group and call this autoimmune when the, even if there's that component, cause I had no idea. And it makes it's, it changes how you advocate for yourself or for, you know, I mean, if you're being told all the time that, you know, you're eating too much gluten and your dairy and, you know, I mean, 
you're going to maybe listen to the doctor because that's what we're told to do anyway. So it's, I think that's a really interesting piece too about educating, not just the disabled piece or ableism and all of that, but like, what is EDS and how do we treat it? And how do you advocate for yourself if you have it? It, And it's so difficult because so right now I'm going through it all over again because I change, you know, the joy of working in healthcare. I change insurances because I change hospitals. So I have to change doctors. Um, and I'm dreading <laughs> looking for a new PCP because you go into there for the first appointment and I have a binder because I'm that patient. <laughs> I'm, I'm like, that patient too. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Pictures. <laughs> but, um, so I go in and not only, you know, I, you know, I, I always call ahead. I'm like, do you, have you ever treated a patient with Ehlers-Danlos syndrome? And do you, do you know of this? Because a simple Google search helps very little. It does not help. Um, the Ehlers-Danlos Society um, is like the international governing body of all EDS patients. Um, they have a list that I believe was compiled in the 90s. Um, that is that of all the PC of all of the doctors and um, healthcare providers that will treat EDS around the world. It's very helpful if you live in a you know a bit much more populated area. But living in rural Virginia, there's little to nothing, and you have to go into this appointment and say, okay, not only do I need you to be my doctor, you have to put them through med school. <laughs> you have to teach them to teach how to take care of you. Every specialist that you have, because this. Disorder affects every body system that I have. And there's so often times where you wake up with this this disorder and you're like, okay, is this just a flare symptom? Is this my new normal? Or like, is this normal people sick? Like what is, what is wrong with me? Yeah. (laughs) Is this Hmm. enough for me to call a doctor and go in there with this random symptom of, Hey, today my right thumb doesn't work. And I think it's because it's dislocated, but I don't, it doesn't hurt because I have Ehlers-Danlos syndrome and I don't know what to do with it. Fix me. And they look at you like you have four heads. (laughs) And so healthcare is not great to Ehlers-Danlos or the chronic illness population because we are taught to fix things and chronic illness is not something that can be fixed. And so it's very difficult for healthcare to deal with. <laughs> what, what, um, what do you imagine could be like, if you could educate and create and what would you do to get people to imagine if, yeah, imagine if, well, I would love to see the same attention um, and support that we give to our ailing aged populations. So we, you know, often have um, nurses whose sole jobs is to call every heart failure patient for a hospital system and make sure they're following up on their daily weights. How are you doing with your breathing today? You know, are you fluid restricting, um, et cetera, et cetera. We have people who are patient advocates specifically dedicated to this disease process and to, oh, you have a question at two in the morning, call this number and we can tell you, okay, yeah, you should go to the ER. Mm, nah, that's something you can say for the specialist. That kind of support, because it's not that we don't have support for chronic conditions. It's that we only see it as a product of aging or as a product of lifestyle, COPD and diabetes. I'm looking at you. And <laughs> we don't use that same attention to someone who is born with this chronic illness 
whether it's rare like mine or something like, you know, the whole fibromyalgia population or things like that, where it's just, there is no support. There's just no standard of care for any of those people. And my Instagram inbox is every single day overflowing with people desperate for medical care and medical advice. And I'm like, this is not what I do. I can't do this over the internet. Yeah, I was going to say, like, how do you, you you must be like a, the light that all the, all the mosquitoes want to swarm around, you know, like, and I don't mean that in a, in a bad way. I'm saying like, you, there wasn't before you, there wasn't a light, you know, there was little to nothing. So what do you do with all that attention and all that? It must just kill you to read through all those messages and want to help everybody and not know how. So how do you, what do you do? Um, it, I think around last spring, um, when I, I had a post go viral on LinkedIn and it got over 17 million views. Um, and all of a sudden, all of my social media and my email was just overrun with requests for interviews, but also just advice. I mean, just paragraphs of moms coming to me for their preteen daughters who are newly diagnosed and can't get out of bed and they are at the end of the rope and don't know what to do. And they find me and so do all 200 other stories that sound exactly like them. And at first I tried to answer every single one as thoroughly as I could. And it got to the point where I wasn't sleeping. I wasn't eating. I was at the time trying to transition as my role as a new bedside nurse in a wheelchair, the night shift for the first time in two years and trying to do this all in my off time, which didn't exist because we were so short at my unit, we had 48 hours of extra call time per schedule, but that's a whole other thing. (laughs) So it was just so much um, that I, I mean, I was beating myself up because I just couldn't help everybody. And so I just kind of had to turn back to my platform and my spotlight and give the the most advice and address as many of those similar situations as I could on a more public forum because it's just, it's too much for one person for sure. Like you're giving it a, uh, I mean, even just now that you're kind of trying to address this just in your videos and stuff, I think that I really enjoy watching them. And I think they're, you probably are reaching a lot of people, I would imagine. Yeah, it definitely, I feel feel like it's gotten to a point where I I finally feel like, like, okay, I think I kind of know what I'm doing in this world now. Okay. All right. This is kind of. It's so uh, re-inspiring to do these and to talk to people like you because especially for nurses, would never have anybody, anybody at all. I mean, I've learned so much about not only EDS, but, you know, ableism and the things I said and didn't even think about. And, you know, um, and the fact that there's no, and just woke up to the fact that there's no training even for healthcare professionals because there's no disabled people in healthcare. I mean, unless they're in an administration or something like that. I mean, so you're smashing so many how the world thing, how the world says things ought to be. I don't know mm-hmm. if that makes any sense. Um, but anyway, erect, let me come back to my, a shadow of my original point. Um, I've learned so much and, uh, I'm so excited for people to hear this because 
they would never have known otherwise, especially nurses. We had a similar uh, woman with um, who Trish Matmo, just shamelessly plugging another product, lymphedema. Like yep. you know, I heard about it, saw it in the ICU, and you know when I'd work with it, but didn't know because it's usually something. You know, I, I work in ICU, so it's something an acute thing, and you you don't worry about the lymphedema. You worry about you know saving their life and put them on the floor and sending them home, and that's where they take care of it. I never knew. And I think so many doctors don't know what it is, don't know how to, you know, and um, it was such an inspiring story. And so is yours. I mean, like, I've learned well, so much and I'm so excited for people to hear about, you know, hear you, meet you. Well, and I want, I want, you know, I mean, to me, like, I, doc, this should be in our education, in our yeah. nursing education and in our medical education, you know, for a doctor to come in and, you know, not not even realize, right? Like, oh, well, because you can walk, you should walk, right? Because you can get out of your, like, but that, and like you said, it's completely, it's innocent in that way, right? But it's because nobody knows. Best one I can say, and the one that people oftentimes don't believe is um, almost Every single doctor I have ever had, especially, I mean, even specialists, even orthopedic specialists, rheumatologists, the second they see that I'm a wheelchair user who can stand and who can get up, that, I mean, oh my gosh, it's the worst thing I could possibly do. No, um, nobody wanted me to use a wheelchair until I was falling multiple times a day. And I was like, look, this is ridiculous. I'm getting head injuries. Um, I multiple concussions, like no. And so I finally get my chair and every time I go in a provider's office, the first thing that they're like, you use that full time. And I'm like, um, yeah, 97% of the time. Like, well, aren't you worried about muscle wasting? I'm, I'm- muscle wasting. <laughs> Boom. Like when, before I had this thing, I was following, falling down the stairs like four times a day. Like, are you, no. Like the, the concept of quality of life, like a wheelchair mm-hmm. or a mobility aid or, you know, something like that, that is we're reliant on is we have to, in healthcare, we're taught to see that as it has to be bringing down their quality of life and therefore it must be avoided at all costs. And it's never seen as, and that's why terms like wheelchair bound exist because obviously that person is bound to that chair and it is bringing down their quality of life and they can no longer be a productive member of society. And every single time I have to re-educate and say, you don't understand muscle wasting. Like, let me explain to you what my life was like before. And like, and oh, every time at the end of that appointment, they're like, thank you for explaining that to me because it's not a way I was ever taught to depict disability. And so it it didn't matter if it was the best doctor that Mm -hmm. I've ever had that's really helped me with my diagnosis or the worst. It was, it's the response to mobility aids that we are taught as a healthcare provider that needs to change. Saying sure. it needs to change. It's oh. an insane premise. Crazy. Yes. It just. Mm. I'm like, I know, I know how to, you know, care for somebody who's going through transition in an OR, but I do not know about somebody in a wheelchair. That doesn't make any sense. Nope. None. It's, it's just- crazy, right? Oh my god. <laughs> okay, I want to know. Tell me about something because of what you've went through and what you've shared. I love to hear a couple. Is there something that stings out like a win? Like somebody found you and thank God they found you. Yes. Um, I have that for twofold parts. So um, as a nurse 
in a wheelchair, my favorite win. Um, and I've gotten his permission to tell this story. So it was not a problem. Um, he, so I was a case manager in the emergency room at the time. So I was not hands-on with patients, but I was, um, the person that was responsible for acquiring mobility aids or medical equipment, home health services, getting you placed in a skilled nursing facility, whatever you needed after discharge, that was my job. And so I had a patient come in the ER um, and he was a paraplegic. He was a wheelchair user. And my hospital at the time um, covered a very large, very rural population, um, especially southern middle of nowhere, West Virginia, where this patient was from. And he comes in. Um, he's in his 20s and he's totally septic. We can see from the, rolling in the door. I'm like, well, OK, <laughs> where is your ulcer on you? Because I can just guess from here. And sure enough, he had a sacral decubitus that was totally horribly infected. Um, and I'm in there, he'd already been, you know, triage. He's hooked up to antibiotics by the time I come to see him. And I'm like, nobody, it was the ER. So they're just like, Hey, they need to see you in this room. Just go in there. I'm like, all right, fine. Go in there. And I look and I see his wheelchair and I quickly realize why he has an infected sacral. Um, that would be because, uh, his wheelchair is actual, fitted for him chair broke long ago and he'd been waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting for a replacement chair, which is insanely common in the disabled community. And when you break your fitted chair, oftentimes the company will give you a loaner. Uh, the loaner that I received um, and similar to the one he did is the exact same thing as a hospital transport chair with the leather, leather bottom mm-hmm. and the flip out things that's usually like, you know, four feet wide. Yeah, that was his chair he was using to get around. Um, And he had been for a good long way too long, to the point where the bottom had rotted out of it. And he had a piece of plywood as Oh my gosh. And a stack of towels. And that was it. And so because of my background and because of who I was, you know, I automatically was like, I know how to fix this problem. Like, called every seating and mobility company in the area and like got to figure it out. But because I knew exactly what I was talking about as a wheelchair user, I could get him the chair that he needed. But the win for me, I mean, that was really awesome. And like, oh, my world has come full circle. Okay, cool. But so there's this kid he comes in with like 104 degree temperature. His, you know, his ass is totally infected. He is not having a good time. And I wheel into his room and he goes, holy fucking shit. Are you my nurse? And I'm like, <laughs> yeah, dude, I'm your nurse. How's it going? He goes, this is the coolest thing ever. And I'm like, what? Like dying laughing at this kid. And he was just like, I've never in my life had a healthcare provider with a disability. And it is just so fucking cool to have you roll in here because I automatically know that I'm going to be taken care of and I don't have to constantly be uh, on my guard and making sure that something crazy isn't done to me because I have a disability. Oh, what a relief. Oh my gosh. I was like, I can just lay here and be sick and I don't have to freak out every five yeah. seconds that we're going to oh, kill you. That's such a win. Yeah. That's amazing. So that that got me. Oh, no, it got me too. <laughs> I, I still, like, I totally, um, like, uh, like saved the cutout of his face sheet, and I still have it to this day, and I, like, have it taped in my locker, so I see it, and I'm like, this is why I do this, and this is why I fight, and this is why I, you know, go for so long without sleep, because there's a whole population of people who need to see someone like them in healthcare. 
I need to see that they are worthy of more than just sitting at home and rotting away on government subsidized funding because we still have brains and we still have hearts and we still have empathy and abilities beyond what people could possibly imagine because of what we've had to deal with and have to go through. And healthcare is the absolute perfect setting. How can people get a hold of you? What's the best way? Obviously, Instagram and social media, but um, what are you doing beside nursing? Um, so besides nursing, um, I am, like, obviously, Instagram is the best way to contact me. So Chronically Rye is my platform. It's on all social media things that you could possibly imagine. Can you spell, uh, for people just listening, can you spell Rye? Yeah. Anyway, so it's um, chronically underscore ry for Instagram, um, and on almost other all their platforms, there if there's no underscore, it's just a space chronically ry, and we are available on Instagram, YouTube, TikTok, Clubhouse, uh, Facebook, and I'm forgetting LinkedIn. Twitter. Oh, and LinkedIn. That's the other one. Okay. <laughs> um, and so I'm available on all those platforms. Uh, LinkedIn, you can find me. My name is Ryan Mason. That's R-Y-A-N-N. Mason, like the jar. Um, <laughs> Thanks for all that. I mean, that's for, that's for like people like me. Like, I am, I am, Andre does all my spelling and math for me. <laughs> <laughs> so used to it. Um, and so, yeah, that's where you can find me and keep up to date on whatever the next big thing is currently. Um, I think the next thing coming up, um, I just actually um, signed with C Talent, which is my talent representation company um, that only represents disabled talent. So that's been really cool to yeah. finally find a like niche. But um, also, um, this coming October um, is October happens to be Disability Employment Month. <laughs> Get out. I had no idea that was a thing um, <laughs> until the uh, National Institute of Health reached out to me to be their keynote speaker for their disability employment. Hurrah! Well, that's <laughs> exciting. Like, yeah, so I, that'll be that's my next big, big speaking. Good for you. That's great. When I have details. They will be available, but right now I don't don't have all those yet. But once we'll I- just follow you on Instagram or any of those others and you'll get them right. Yeah. When's the TEDx talk? I'm sure that's coming. Yeah. I'm sure that's up next. Yeah. Hello. Uh, uh, plug for me. TEDx. You listening? You can. I know. Seriously. Yeah. Well, was that the first one? Yeah. <laughs> duh. <laughs> that's oh, yeah, next cool. <laughs> oh, yeah, Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you for the inspiration porn. Yeah. I can't <laughs> help it. <laughs> I know. I know. Um, Thank you. Rye. You guys, that's a wrap. What a great podcast. If you're a nurse, head over to www.rnegade.pro. Follow the prompts, do the activity, fill out the evaluation for the podcast that you just listened to, and get a CE. Could we just make CE by podcast the norm? Please. Bye.